Without milk, no mammals. Without mammals, no primates. Without primates, no humans. Without humans, no radio. Without radio, no KBBI. Without KBBI, no check the pantry. Today, Terry Robel and I are making things with milk, and neither one of them is cheese. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. Recently, that we've come to think of milk as an important food in its own right, for thousands of years, it was just the raw material from which a whole lot of important foods were made. Unrefrigerated, unpasteurized, and unprocessed, it spoiled quickly, since it is an excellent food source for many kinds of life, including harmful microorganisms. People figured out early on, though, that there were lots of things you could do to milk to make it last. You could strip out the cream, agitate it, and make butter. You could fill a young animal's stomach with it, and the rennet in the stomach would break the milk's emulsion and curdle proteins and fat, which you could then strain out to make cheese. You could ferment it, either with a bacterial culture to make yogurt, or a culture containing yeast and bacteria to make kefir. You could take the thin liquid left over after eliminating the fat, dry it in the sun, and keep the powdered milk solids for later use. For long stretches of human history, the important milk producers in most places were probably sheep and goats. Cows were for working, and most of their milk went to raising more cows. The nomadic people of Central Asia used horses' milk. In the deserts of North Africa and Arabia, camels provided the dairy. Tibetans got theirs from yaks. There are now a handful of dairies in Russia and Sweden that use moose milk. Half a pound of the cheese produced at one of them sells for $1,000. The development of railroads in the mid-1800s combined with Louis Pasteur's discovery in 1863 that gentle heating eliminated spoilage bacteria brought unfermented cow's milk to non-farm tables. British milk was the subject of one of the first modern marketing campaigns as the fast-growing dairy industry blanketed cities with advertisements promoting milk drinking in order to create demand for their newly available product. By the end of the 19th century, the idea of milk as a foundational pillar of Western civilization was thoroughly entrenched, most notoriously in Herbert Hoover's 1923 declaration to the World Dairy Congress that milk production was essential to the, quote, growth and virility of the white race. The claims of 19th century British marketing departments continued to be accepted as fact by 21st century white supremacists who often insist that only pale-skinned Westerners can drink milk, a curious assertion given that milk consumption in India is higher than the U.S. and Europe combined. Another legacy of the swift rise of the dairy industry shows up in school lunches. Fluid milk, as the regulations call it, is the only food that is specifically required to be offered in federally reimbursed school lunch programs and has been since the national school lunch programs beginning in 1946. The program itself developed out of local efforts to supply milk in schools around the country 
and was given its final push as army recruiters dealt with malnourished draftees from impoverished areas. The concentration on fresh milk is not without drawbacks. Some scholars suggest that diverting so much milk production into cartons, jugs, and bottles and bags for our Canadian friends has had negative effects on cheese production. Since favoring unfermented milk over cheese is like preferring raisins to burgundy or a bowl of porridge to an IPA, we can only hope that these effects do not last. You said it was going to be rice pudding, but it looks like something else. Well, Unless I, you put sausage and cheese in your rice pudding. Well, you know, being from Wisconsin, we put sausage and cheese in a lot of things. I was craving rice pudding really bad. And when you said, let's, okay, the show's about milk. We got to do something with milk. And immediately, immediately I thought of oh, rice pudding. And I thought, oh, darn, that sounds so yummy. And so I had that on my brain all week and I went, oh, I can up that. That won't be such a big exciting thing to cook <laughs> and then when you said well maybe quiche I went oh I haven't made a quiche in a long time so but I have to tell you the first time I had quiche was when I came to Homer about 37 really? years ago Homer was your introduction to quiche it was you might be the only person in the world that can say that I know <laughs> and and I went to the fresh sourdough express bakery on Ocean Drive when Donna Maltz and her husband Kevin had it it was amazing. It was ambrosia. It was the best piece of quiche I ever had. <laughs> I can't tell you what was in it. I think it was ham and Swiss cheese. And I also had my first latte there. Wow. Yeah. So um, maybe that's why I decided to stay because the food was so good. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, over the years, because we have chickens that lay our eggs, I like to use um, the eggs, the fresh eggs, and quiche. Yeah, we're gonna make quiche today, I decided. All right. We have eggs. Well, let's do it. We have cream, we have milk, we have cheese from Wisconsin. Do you um, have a pie crust? We, we're gonna make a pie crust. Oh, oh, wow. We, yep. Oh, that's what the marble pastry board's y out. Yep, oh, look yep. at you. Yep, I got her out. All right. That's my, my workout for the, for the day. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna make quiche. In our quiche, though, we are gonna put some mousse breakfast sausage. Uh, Mark got a mousse this year. And Great. we mix um, mousse, grind, and pork shoulder, and seasonings, and a little buttermilk. And that is our pork sauce, our bulk pork sausage. All and right. So yeah, here we go. And so first, uh, we're going to make our pie crust. And I get a lot of grief if I don't make it from scratch, <laughs> because my family can tell. And that's OK. You know, I mean, when I first started making pie crust, it was a trial and error. And it went flying against the wall a lot because I would be so mad it didn't work. And of course now probably because today we're doing this together and in your next expert baker, no, I will probably flub this. <laughs> so don't worry, I'm not I'm not okay. an expert baker. Well first um, first we're gonna start with some flour. Um, it's just one pie crust. I'm gonna blind bake it. And I'll tell you about that more in a little bit. First we're gonna put a little flour in here, just regular all purpose. I'm telling you, you gotta switch. What to what? To pastry flour. Oh, I know. See, it's I'm like, so much better. I know, and I totally forget. You gotta remind me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just have to write it down. It's so much better. It just makes it. You notice immediately when you start working with it. Yeah. Damn. It's just easier. So it's like about a cup and a half, maybe. Or so for 
a single crust. What do you use? You know me, I use like weights and stuff. I know. That's why I, I have to have you have to have you on the show to, to <laughs> appease all the people who get mad at me for using scales. I, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And so my pie crust recipe is from the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook, but um, I have since started adding half butter and half shortening. It, their recipe calls for all shortening. Yeah, all shortening sucks. Yeah. So I think it needs a little. Um, a little of uh, butter, fruit flavor, and goodness. So, and as we're doing that, my oven's heating up. Um, it should be going to 400. Uh, hold on, I already forgot my uh, measurements. So, just a minute. <laughs> well, this is one and a half cups flour and a half a cup of shortening. So, so what was yours again? Uh, it's three to one is the ratio. Three to one. Yeah, that so that use, would be really easy to remember. It is really easy to remember. That's why I, that's why I use it. Yeah, you use three right. parts. So if you use six hundred grams of flour, you use four hundred grams of butter and two hundred grams of water. I know. Roughly, the water can the water can vary a little because of it. There goes there goes the grams. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I love it. I'm glad you. I'm glad I should do it that way. That's all right. It's okay. Whatever works for you, right, guys? Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's just that then if you want to make like three batches instead of you know, just one, or if you want to make a half batch, it's really easy to change the. And then, what do you use for size. your fat? Uh, I like. I, I almost always use butter, unless I have like lard. <gasps> Ooh, that that's good stuff. Or other animal fats. I just don't keep shortening around. No, so. and I think just because that's what we used when I was a kid growing up. Yeah, that's definitely what I learned with, but I uh -huh. just I never I just never have it around. I gotta get a fork. Okay. Oh, oh, we gotta put a little salt in. I just gotta put a little salt in. So just probably like, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm putting in a quarter cup of um, shortening and I'm blending it into my flour with a fork. They make these nice little tools called pastry blenders. That's what I, that's what I have. And I, do um, I don't know, for some reason I like them and I don't like them. I know a lot of people that also make their pie crust in their blender. I make mine in my food processor now. Typically, when you make it in the food processor, it's really easy to make it too tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I you do know? all the time. There's a technique that was developed on Serious Eats by Kenji Lopez. <gasps> oh, he's awesome. Yeah, isn't he's he? awesome. And he he uh, he went through this whole rigmarole of trying to make it in a pro in a food processor, and he came out with a way, and it works really well. And I've started using it oh, oh. almost exclusively, where you actually, and it's really counterintuitive the way that he makes it. Oh boy! <laughs> because you put in almost all of the fat, and then like a third of the flour into the food processor, and you just let it go. You like crank on it, and you turn it into like a flour and and butter paste. And then you take the rest of the flour and you add that and you pulse it in in little short shots at a time. And it, it's, it happens so fast. Like you can go start to finish um, making a pie crust in like a minute. See, that's what I need to do. Cause and it comes out, it comes out, it doesn't come out tough because you're not running the food processor for so long. Um, with most of the flour, you, you get like most of the, you get all the gluten buildup in the first when you're making the paste and then when you just add the rest of the flour, you're just cutting it in like you're cutting it in butter, you know? And then you add the, the water by hand just really gently until it absorbs all the water, and it totally works perfectly. Oh. It's amazing. Okay, gotta try that. I see you're grating your butter, I though. grated my butter. It was actually, um, it works really good. It, it 
usually when it's cold, which you should have cold things. I think I, I jumped the gun a little bit and started getting ready for you to come and it didn't stay real cold, but it'll be fine. So now we're just gonna get our little fork back and blend this in. Everybody who's listening, we all need to check out the um, food processor dough because dough is not my favorite thing to make. <laughs> I don't know, but, but then you think about all this stuff. Okay, so all I have right now is a bowl and a fork. Yeah. And then you put this stuff in your food processor yeah. and that's a major pain to clean it's up. It's true. And it, it takes a lot of time to do that. I don't it know. Is. Do you throw yours in the dishwasher? Do you even have a dishwasher? I actually do have a dishwasher because when you have a tiny kitchen, actually uh -huh. a dishwasher is a really valuable appliance because it means okay. you can keep, keep your counters a little more clear of stuff. Yep, yep. But um, honestly, like I find it's so much easier and the way that, the way that it's made the way that his process goes, you actually, then you, you refrigerate the dough for a while afterwards to get everything really right. cool. And the way it works, like it, it doesn't really matter if a little bit of the fat starts to melt in the initial process because the, the flour absorbs any of it. So that it, oh, that's, nice. that's a nice pastry blender. It works really well. It <laughs> is, works really is well. The, is the short well, version okay, of it. Okay, I'm gonna and you can be a little more, you can be a little more lax in like the, you know, it doesn't have to be so cold. And See, that's perfect. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the advantage of it is that it's it's much less finicky to make, you okay. know, and you get a really really consistent result on it every time. Oh, it's not well, like see consistent. That's the key word here. Yeah, and that's tough to that's tough to achieve it when you're is. making it by hand, you I know, because a really good hand and still I think a really good hando uh -huh. is better than that method, you uh -huh. know, where where like it's just like shatters and it falls apart. Oh, love that. But those are really hard to work too. Yeah, you and know? how many people really know that? I mean, when it's I there mean, in front of you and you're eating it, you know yeah, it. Yeah, I know. You but know? I think I think a lot of folks, too, are, um, they, they don't know. Well, anyway, so I grabbed my pastry blender just because you were talking about yours. And um, I'm you, just blending I, I it. I think I see the reason that you might not like it. Because you use it in a different way than I learned how to use how it. How do you do it? I rock it. Like this? Yeah. Doesn't it squish it? Well, that's kind of what it's, it, no, it cuts it in. Oh, like that? Yeah, yeah. I'm rocking this back and forth. Yeah, and then you spin the bowl. Oh. That's how I've always used it. See? That's how I learned how. Well, you should... <laughs> that's and how, I just winged it, this man. Because this is the classic of, of biscuit making. Like, also oh, really? Gets, also gets started the same way. So, and just yeah. like this. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> That's See, too it's, cool. It's so much easier, yeah. Yeah. And it works, so tell it me works. when you think we're looking good then. I mean, I, I always go till it, you know, what do they say, rough sand? Yeah, rough sand or... Um, Cornmeal. I don't know, the, the old cookbooks say uh, the size of small peas. Well, no, no, well, no. Rough, I like rough sand with some the size of small peas, which is about well, where you're at. I think we're there. Because you need those, you need the bigger chunks to be the, the parts that melt between the layers and right. get all that flaky. All right. So now we have our ice water. I've got some ice and some water in a um, measure cup. And um, it's just to gradually add the ice water. I don't know. I think I have issues with this because I always end up adding more water than it says. And... I very seldom chill it because I'm always in too much of a hurry. Well, that's actually, you know, chilling it does make a big difference, even in like a hand dough. I always have a problem, like if I make a dough and then I immediately make a make a crust out of it, it always wants to shrink back. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to roll out very well and, and not have it like want to keep shrinking back because the gluten and the flour hasn't relaxed yet. 
Whereas if you let it sit, even an hour makes a big difference, I find. I mean, that's what I feel. Wow. You know, you're right. Because I've always had a hard time trying to make it, like, if you make a dough and you, you know, like biscuit dough and stuff like that doesn't matter, but for pie dough where you want it to have a certain shape. Well, that, maybe this is another show with Terry on what not to do. <laughs> Just like the almond chicken, you know? It was like, no, because I never cared for chilling it because it was so hard to work. Yeah, and well, roll out. that's you just got to warm it up a little bit, you know. And usually, what I do is I beat on it a little bit with the, with the rolling pin Good when you pull it out of the oven. Yeah. 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 And then it, it softens it up just enough to where it'll roll out. All right. But that's you know. Wow. Like I say, I'm not like a great, particularly good. I, I suck at making pie dough, actually. No, you don't. Well, you just probably... told me. <laughs> you just told me all these great hints. This is what I like about. No, I make I make really I make it good. Like I make a tasty pie dough uh -huh. with, with a nice texture. I just I'm not very good at like making it look really. Oh, nice mine are kind of hit and miss. You know, <laughs> sometimes they're really amazing, and sometimes they're like so so. And and you know I don't profess to be a professional. Okay, so um, I have my water incorporated, and now I am just um, making a little ball of dough with the whole, with kind of like Play-Doh. So um, if, if we had, in the real world, we would chill this for an hour. That's what I would do. I mean, sometimes and, I leave it overnight. Or, and, and, you know. But we don't have that much time today. We don't. So I think um, in the, the um, essence of that, we're just going to, we're gonna go for it. We can do it. Like I say, it's not that it's not doable. I mean, people yeah. do it all the time. But um, I just feel like I feel like it's just easier if it's. Well, I love that. And, if and it's chilled. Okay, so um, I have also I learned with a um, a rolling pin that has ends on it, not yeah. like the French one. I have yeah. a beautiful wood rolling pin a friend in Homer made me. Oh, that nice. it's just it's lovely. I think it's is it maple maybe I don't know. I have it. And it's a work of art, and I should really learn how to use it. But I have a maple one that it's out sitting on the deck where it's still kind of cool. Uh -huh. And I'm going to go get that. Okay, so I have a rolling pin. It is still kind of cool. And um, I'm just going to put a little flour on it to assist in rolling out the dough. And the reason I got the marble board out is because the tile on my island is in, in squares. And there's... Um, little cracks and crevices, and so the pie crust would look kind of dorky. <laughs> I always notice when I make the single pie crust, it's a little thicker than it should be. But you know, this is quiche, and I don't care because I love pie crust. And if you're gonna eat quiche for dinner or lunch, you gotta have a little substance. Substance. Okay, so we just folded it in quarters, and I just put it in the pie plate and unfolded it. And um, there's a little overhang we're gonna trim off. And I'll just use my handy dandy little, um, actually I use my kitchen shears for that. If I can find it. <laughs> well, I just had it because I was cutting up some chives. There they are. Here they are. Which is probably the last of my chives that I have on them. So just now I'm just bit. gonna um, make a little cuteness on it. I'm gonna. Yeah, see this is the part I'm really bad at. Well, that's cause well, I won't say why. <laughs> <laughs> this is not because you're a guy, but just because I don't know. This is just something I like to do. Anyway. I always, I always get to a point in, in any of the decorative aspects uh, where I'm just, just like, like, you know, that's rustic enough, and then I, and then I walk away from. Well, it. yeah, we can make galettes. Galettes, galettes, galettes. Galette. Galette. All right, I'm close. See, <laughs> I gotta go to France. 
So we're just going to make a little crimp, crimping, I believe that's called. Yes. You could do a little design with a fork or I just use my, my fingers and make a little scallop. Then there's the people that I really hate that will, they'll, have you seen the, the one where they braid the little rope? Oh, yeah. Of dough and then oh, they yeah. put it, like, I hate those people. I hate those people, too. Or they make the cute little cutouts with the little fall leaves and yeah. stuff. And I'm like, yeah. wow. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't poo-poo with them because, you know, I I have time to do that. Now. I mean, purely it's jealousy. Is, is it totally it is because it looks so good. It probably looks as good as it tastes, right? So obviously, since this is a uh, since this is a show about milk, uh, we're gonna make meatballs, <laughs> um, and it might seem a little weird at first. But what I'm doing right now, you can't see me, but I promise I'm doing this. Pouring some milk, and I'm gonna add some cream too into a bowl that contains some bread, because in my opinion. The best meatballs, or I should actually say the best meatballs of this particular style of meatball, which we'll get into in a second, are made with what is called a panade. And all a panade is, is bread soaked in milk. And the idea of a panade is to, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things. One way is simply as filler. Um, it's designed to stretch a smaller amount of meat. If you only have a little bit of meat, you could use a, a lot of panade and get a large and fairly cheap and pretty filling meal out of it. Meatballs, meatloaf, these are all not the only purpose, but part of the purpose of them has always been to either use up little bits and scraps of leftover meat or to stretch a meal as far as you can possibly take it by bulking it up with starch. But the actual purpose of a panade isn't really just to do that. The actual purpose of a panade is to add moisture, to add texture. It's a textural thing. It is designed to loosen the texture of meat. There are other ways that you can firm up the texture of meat, ground meat, including most famously eggs. In my opinion, the best meatballs of this style of meatball contain no eggs. They are very fluffy almost and very soft. When you cut them you can cut them with a spoon they just sort of fall apart they have shape you know they're not just they're not just falling everywhere they've got a shape to them there's a definite solid texture but they're soft and they're tender the other style of meatball is uh the very springy kind which you might be familiar with uh it's it's a very common style in asia particularly in southeast asian cooking and it's that firm, sort of very springy texture. Badly made, it can become rubbery, but typically it isn't. And the way that that's generally achieved is a combination of frequently just egg whites and cornstarch. And what you get is that very, very tight springy texture. There are some similar styles in the West that, that have that kind of firmer, tighter texture. But the kind of meatball that I am making today is most commonly associated in the U.S. with the Italian-American style meatball. You don't have to flavor it that way. You can flavor it any way you want to. It is a big, you know, at least a couple of bites. It's not a tiny meatball, like, like a cocktail meatball or something like that. This is a pretty sizable one. And so I've made my panade, and I don't really have any particular measurements. In fact, I, meatballs are sort of one of those things that I, I don't really have a recipe. It is purely a technique. Um, I just kind of work it till I think it's good. I got a sizable amount of meat here, and... 
I put several big chunks of a round loaf of bread that I had laying around that needed to get used up and three slices of just regular white sandwich bread. You can use any kind of bread, but it doesn't matter that much. Now, there are some people who like to use their who like to use breadcrumbs. And I actually, last week, I went to the trouble of making three separate batches of meatballs that were identical except for how they were bound. And one was with eggs and breadcrumbs, uh, which you do see a lot of recipes that, that call for that. And one was panko, just dried breadcrumbs and milk. And the other was fresh breadcrumbs and milk. And I made them all and tried them all in preparation for this part, for this show. And the the eggs and breadcrumbs was definitely the firmest, definitely the tightest. And it had much more of like a meatloaf texture, which is not what I want in a meatball, but it is what I want in a meatloaf. Although I typically make meatloaf with a panade as well, but I'll add a couple of eggs to it to help it bind and to make it a little more sliceable. You know, you don't want your meatloaf to just fall apart when you slice it which these meatballs kind of will do. The breadcrumb and the milk panade was, it was fine. There wasn't anything wrong with it. I would say it was a little firmer. I personally liked the the very soft texture that the fresh bread and the milk uh, had. I thought it was the best, but it was a pretty small thing. So you can totally use regular breadcrumbs. The important thing is when you're using any kind of a panade like this, you got to let it sit for a little bit. You, you don't want to just add the breadcrumbs to the to the meat and then add the milk to the to the meat too. You wanna to let them sit, you know, you want the starch to kind of dissolve a little bit and uh, the breadcrumb to fully hydrate and everything to get nice and soft and pasty. <laughs> and I, I use, I leave the crust on personally, I don't mind. I actually like the textural contrast of when a little chunk of crust appears, but if you don't want, if you don't like that, if you want to have a little bit more of a homogenous texture, just cut the crust off and you'll get that. It's also, I find that you get the softest and nicest texture with white bread because it doesn't have the bran. It more fully absorbs the milk. And I've used some, this is just whole milk. A lot of meatball recipes will want you to use like fattier meat. Personally, I almost always make my meatballs with, with a leaner meat because I don't want it to be sausage. You know, sausage is a different thing to me. The texture of sausage is different. The fattiness of sausage is different. To me, a meatball is kind of like, you know, if you happen to have some fatty meat laying around, I mean, sure, throw it in, whatever. I, In fact, in this one, I had a pork chop that I probably wasn't going to get to eaten before I needed to, and it was real fatty. Oh, it was a good pork chop, too. I cut it, I just sliced it up and threw it in here with the rest of the meat, uh, which is, in fact, a friend of mine filled up two freezers with his moose this year, and he had a little left over, so he asked me if I wanted it, and I'm not going to say no, so I took it. And so that's extremely lean, and this is the second batch of meatballs that I've made with it, and it's perfectly delicious, perfectly soft. The reason that we use the panade is we're adding fat, we're adding moisture, we're adding starch that will absorb moisture, bind the whole thing together, and as long as we don't overcook it, it's not going to be dry. To me, this is like the ideal usage for some random scraps of leftover meat, you know, like I, if you try to make a burger with this stuff, it's going to be terrible because it's going to be dry. But you put it in this, add a bunch of milk and uh, add a bunch of bread soaked milk to it and you can get something that is really delicious. So I've let my panade sit here for a few minutes and I'm grabbing my big pile of ground meat. I'm going to say this is probably, it's about a one to four ratio of panade to meat. And we'll see how this goes. You know, these are these are pretty. This is a pretty mellow and forgiving process. So if I if I start mixing it in and I'm like, eh, you know, I think I need it. It needs to be a little softer 
easy to do. I just make up a little more panade and add it. Got a little salt, sprinkle a little salt in the panade because I am a big believer in salting every step. And I'm feeling very extravagant because I ran out of diamond crystal kosher salt and I keep forgetting to buy it. But a couple of years ago, I bought a big thing for relatively cheap of Fleur de Sel. And <laughs> so that's what I'm using right now. And it feels very extravagant because this stuff is, it's not gonna make it taste any different because I mean, it tastes like salt and it's gonna lose all the texture, but you know, you do what you gotta do. Okay, well, there, there's our cute little, see now, wasn't that hard? No, so you better. could do that. I know I could, but. Oh, Jeff. Well, just call me next time and I'll run over to the whole other side of town to make <laughs> your pie crust look cute. So to blind bake this, um, I'm gonna put a little parchment paper on, on the bottom of it. And then I've got these cool little pie weights I bought that I, I always forget to use. I used to have uh, dried beans. Yeah, that's they what I've always used. Too. Yeah, and then I, I always forget to have those because uh. I never use them. So, um, Anyway, it's way too big, so we're gonna trim it down a little bit. This is pretty cool stuff, this parchment paper. It's quite handy for many things. It's not real, real affordable, well, it's not bad. Okay, so you can- you know, the, the thing you should really do, since especially since you cook a lot, is you should go to a restaurant supply store. And you buy it And buy the, buy the sheet. You can buy them in, they, they come in full sheet sizes. You can also buy them in half sheet sizes too, which is better for the home kitchen, but you can cut them in half. That's what I do. I still have, and you, they come a thousand at a time in a big box. Oh, cool. And they last forever. Where do you, and do you get those? Restaurant supply. Restaurant supply. Yeah. Okay, so I got these cute little white beads in here that look like little baby peas. And so we're gonna put this little guy in the oven. It's on 400. Of course, you know, every time we do show together, I have to look at all kinds of different recipes for <laughs> things. So I, I found this one for quiche today and she's kind of got some cool stuff on it. She likes using a super flaky homemade pie crust. And then she's got you blind baking it for a little bit and then um, taking out the parchment and the weights and pricking the pie crust with the fork and putting it back in for like eight minutes. So we're gonna try that just because, what the heck, why not? What else are we doing, right? It's to keep the bottom from puffing up. I know. Here we go. In, in the oven, 400. Okay, be happy. 400, um, let's find a time here. I mean, probably, I would check it at 14 minutes. Yeah, I would just, 14, look at him, listen to him. 14 minutes. That's the kind of thing you say. I just, love that. That's the kind of say, thing you say just so you sound super precise. And 14, not like 15, you know not yeah. 10, 14. Yeah. Okay, so we'll just set the timer at, okay, 14 minutes. You just check it then. It might, I mean, it could, okay. it could take a lot longer. Who knows? She likes to make her pie dough the night before because it needs to chill in the refrigerator for at least two hours before rolling out and blind baking, which is true. You know, I think the gluten relaxes and um, it won't snap back and, and the flour totally hydrates with the water. Yes, I get that. That's a big thing too. That's well, that's another one of, the, one of the deals is a lot of times people mm -hmm. add too much water because when you first make it, it'll feel drier and a little more yes. crumbly than yes. you necessarily want it to. But if you just let it sit overnight, <sighs> in the fridge or even, you know, again, just even mm -hmm. an hour or two, it'll, the flour will soak up all the, 
all the water, and it will all of a sudden become a coherent dough. And see, this this is I learned all these things today that I've been doing wrong all these years because I always say, oh, I have to add more water to the flour yeah. and the fat because it seems too dry. Yeah. Well, because I don't refrigerate it. I should be refrigerating yeah, it, then I wouldn't have yeah, to. It, it, when, it, when you do that, then it, it any, you know, because at the beginning when you when you first mix it all up, like some of it's a little wetter than other parts, you know, and other parts are a little drier. Right, but if you let right. it sit for a little bit, then it'll equal, it'll even out and wow. it'll just, I don't know. I, I, I find that to be mostly the case. Cool. Is that it just makes it, it and then and then the dough is a little more pliable because a lot of times too if you start if you try to work it before it's chilled it's almost like too soft you know and sometimes it can be really easy to tear then but yeah. i mean it's all you know and i notice it tears easier if it's thinner too this was pretty thick today yeah once you get once you start getting yeah. really but once you start yeah. getting really thin is where things like like chilling it really matter mm -hmm. because when you're trying to get it super super thin then it has to be, you know, better made. Like you can get away with stuff. Like I say with biscuits, you know, you can get away with being kind of, kind of flippant about how you're actually making it, because you're just gonna throw them right in the oven and they're gonna do what they're gonna do and they're gonna be great. But the pie crust, like the thinner you get it, the more it has to be right, or else it's gonna Got tear, it. it's gonna snap back, it's gonna. But don't you think tearing it? I mean, I, you can easily fix that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's easy to fix, but it's still, you know, it's better not to tear in the first place. Right. It's <laughs> well, you could do a whole show on just pie crust. You, you that would be kind of cool. You do a whole year on pie crust. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> a whole year. I mean, laminated doughs are like, they're basically the, the trickiest thing in the whole pastry kitchen. Okay. Well, we're just going with the home cook version in Terry's kitchen on this beautiful October day. Which okay? is fantastic. <laughs> because, I and mean, that's that's where everything starts. Like, if you can't make one of these, you definitely can't make any of the rest right? of them. And, <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm just thrilled that um, I can make a homemade pie crust because I know tons of people that go buy the pie crust. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you're, you know, you need to do it, you need to do it, you know? So usually when I have a little time, like right now, we still have about 10 minutes where we check our blind dough and I don't smell anything going on quite yet. So maybe um, I'll grate a little cheese or something or clean up. So we're done with, with our pie station here. <laughs> so you got, you got, I see you got like spinach. Um, I had a little spinach left over. And so I think our filling for our quiche besides the eggs and the cream in the milk is we're gonna put a little um, Wisconsin um, farmhouse white cheddar in it. Nice. And that is little, some crumbly cheddar. You know what? I bought that. You know, I, I can't make my trip to Wisconsin this year. Oh, bummer. And this was left from last year, but it doesn't taste bad. So um, I'm going to use it. It looks fantastic. It actually it, looks, it, it kind of looks like, when I walked in, I just sort of assumed it was like a Parmesan. It's not. I have a lot of Parmesan. I can get my favorite Parmesan in town. Yeah at double the price, but I don't care because it's my favorite. It's yeah, it's not bad. It's, it's crumbly. It's really crumbly. It's really nice looking. I know, and it, it tastes a little bit like parm, you know. You're welcome to um, give it a taste when you take your mask off next time. Oh, I, I see, I leave I leave the bottom undone, then I can, like, oh, slip then my cup. Then you can cup. taste it, see? I can slip my cup. And, and you're welcome to. I figured this out. I've got this, you're, you I've got got this, this dialed down, in. Man. No pandemic's going to stop me from eating and drinking. Oh, yeah, I've got crystals. Yeah, 
See? It's Fantastic. a year old. It's really good. Mm, that's great. Yeah, I know. See? I love it when cheese has crystals like that. The old Parmesan has that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is very crumbly. Oh, I'm trying to grate it, and it's kind of crumbling on me too. Well, I like that in a quiche though, because then, then instead of like, yeah. then you get like the big pockets of like half melted cheese. Gooey you know? cheese. And who doesn't love melted cheese, right? I'm just happy we're not making almond chicken today. <laughs> Good radio, bad dish. Oh, that was so. I think that was the funnest show I've ever done with you. Don't you think? Wisconsin does some really really good cheeses and over the years they've really um worked on their artisan stuff yeah and every time i go back there i find some more amazing unique cheeses that weren't there years ago yeah the cheese the, the cheese so, making scene in the in the states has gotten yeah, a lot better yeah, yeah. salting generously adding all of my ground meat to my panade haven't really added anything else yet. I will in a minute, but first I want to get this, I want to get an idea of if I think I'm going to need to add more panade. And this is sort of, when you're doing it this way, it's kind of an experience thing. You know, if you use less panade, you're going to get a little drier product. It's going to be firmer and uh, it won't be as soft. If you use too much, then it'll just fall apart. Now, one thing is I'm really careful in, in in meatballs, at least again, in this style of meatball, I'm not working it super hard. I'm not squeezing down on it like I would with sausage. I just want to gently incorporate it. Now, Swedish meatballs, if you've ever made those, those you got to get real aggro with the meat because you want, again, you want that firmer sort of springy texture. And the couple of times that I've made Asian, um, the various Southeast Asian uh, meatballs, particularly Vietnamese, and you want to get pretty aggro with the meat there too. But in this case, I just want to be real gentle with it. I don't want to make sausage. I don't want to get too much of the myosin real heavily developed. That's pretty good. And actually, I kind of like the I like the, the texture of what it looks like now. It looks like my panade's very well distributed. That I like. Now, I'm going to stop for a second and figure out what I want to do for the rest of my seasonings. And again, you know, I... I typically don't, I find that for things like this, when, you know, when I was, when I was younger and I was first learning to cook and I would make something like meatballs or meatloaf or whatever, like I would think it was really, like I would really try to make like, put a lot of what I considered to be flavor in here, you know, and I'd raid the spice cabinet, throw tons of stuff in and try to make it sound really impressive when I described what I had done to this. And now the older and the more, the more cooking I do, the more I kind of want each of the individual pieces to be fairly simple and to just kind of be what they are. And then if I want something a little more, I can make a sauce that's kind of nuts. I can do a lot of things with, with, a, with a meatball-y meatball that I couldn't do if I added a whole bunch of different, very specific flavors to it. You know, if I throw in a bunch of fennel in here, it's gonna be an Italian style meatball and there's just no way around it. You know, all of a sudden, it, if I put that in like a thick, rich brown gravy, it's gonna taste weird. But if I make a, a meatball that's mostly, it tastes like the salt and the meat, and you know, obviously we'll add a couple other things here, probably a little paprika, I got some garlic out, you know, a few things to give it, you know, a nice roundness and a complex flavor, but it's not so specific that I can't do a bunch of different stuff with it. And part of the reason that I like to do that, especially in a case like this, is that what I'm actually gonna do with these meatballs is I'm gonna cook them all off and then vacuum seal them, throw them in the, 
in the freezer. And this is like, this is kind of this is one of my favorite things. You know, when I come in at the end of at the end of the day, I'm really hungry, but I don't really want to sit there and cook some elaborate meal. I reach in the freezer, grab a pack of these, cut it open and dump it in a pot of, you know, tomato sauce or gravy or whatever. And then like 20 minutes later, I got meatballs and, and it's super easy and it's super delicious. But doing them like this, where there's not a, an overwhelmingly specific flavor, means that I have a lot of choices with what I can do with it. You know, I'm not stuck doing just one thing. You know, if I was specifically making like spaghetti and meatballs, then yeah, I mean, I might throw some fennel in here or whatever. But if I'm not, and I want fennel, then I can just add fennel to the sauce. I haven't already committed. These are non-committal meatballs. These are, we're kicking the can down the road. And you know, for making bulk stuff like this, it's not a bad idea because <laughs> what if three months from now I really want some meatballs and I grab them out but I filled them full of like half a pound of caraway seeds which is good for what I wanted it at the time but now I'm like yeah I don't really want caraway tonight well tough plus as I get as I cook more the more I cook the less need I feel to to add a bunch of different things you know I'm sort of content to add things that will make whatever I'm you know, the main event tastes more like itself, basically, if that makes sense. Like, I'm happy for this for this meatball to taste like it's 90% mousse with a little tiny bit of pork in it. And a little bit of this lovely garlic from my garden that I grew that is extremely intense. Not a whole lot else, really. Maybe some pepper. Maybe some paprika. Everything else I can decide on later. So we're just about done here. This very simple, very delicious meatball mixture. If I was just making a single batch of meatballs, I'd probably pan fry them and then poach them in whatever sauce I'm going to make after I get a crust. But doing it in bulk like this, that takes a while. So I'm going to go ahead and crank the oven. You want it to be pretty hot. Because these aren't going to be very big, they're going to cook relatively quick, and you want to get as much of a as much of a crust on the outside as you can. To get the best crust, you really need to cook it in, or you really need to pan fry it. But you know, we live in a world of compromise, where you don't always get what you want. Rather than sit here for half an hour pan frying meatballs, I'm just going to cook them all in one go in the oven, and it might take about the same time, but I don't have to stand here doing it, which is good, because I don't really want to. You can also, you know, you could just poach them all as well, but then you don't get any kind of a crust at all. And and with these, since I'm in a vac seal them, I wouldn't want to just uh, <laughs> do them raw because they just get smushed in the vac sealer. And then when I pull them out, then I just have raw chunks of meat instead of fully cooked meatballs. And this is now me doing a favor to future me right now. So I want to make life as easy for future me as possible. So I just added a little paprika, um, you know, I don't really see much else here that, that needs to go in here, but I am going to give it a little more pinch of salt just at the end. I always feel like adding that last little pinch of salt, even before you've tasted it, helps. And I really should, since I am, since I am a cook, I really should give this guy a taste. So I'll fire up a little pan, and I'm actually... One thing I like to do is I like to to attempt the 
the old sausage test on this because I want to fail it. The sausage test, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on the show before. When you're making sausage, the way to tell that you've, that you've sufficiently worked the sausage and gotten the proper bind that will create the proper sausage texture is pick a big handful of it up and in, your, in your palm and turn your hand over. And if it sticks and it doesn't fall back into the bowl, then you're there. So with the meatloaf, I like to do the same thing, except I want it to fall back in the bowl because I want to make sure that I haven't developed too much uh, of the bind that makes it tight. So now I should have a very delicious, very simple, very basic meatball. This should be nice and, t nice and tender and soft to eat. Mm. Yeah, even just tapping it. It's cooked on... You know, it's all, I flipped. I just flipped it for the first time. This isn't really a meatball. This is like a little meat patty, um, just so it'll cook a little faster. Um, <laughs> but I just, I just touched it, and like just touching it, you can tell it's super, super tender. It's gonna be really, really, really lovely. A lot of different things I could do with this. It's already gonna be cooked, so you know all you gotta do is heat it through. It's like frozen food, except from your kitchen, which. Some days, man, some days that's all you can manage. And again, you can use the same mixture for meatloaf. Meatloaf and meatballs are basically the same, but if I was making meatloaf, I would definitely add a couple of eggs. Because this, this isn't going to slice too well. <laughs> you know? It's a little soft for that. There we go, let's give this a little taster. Oh yeah, just plunge the spatula right through it. It's so soft. It's just, it's very, very tender. Very simple, very direct meat, mousse flavor. Mm. Yeah, I love it. So I got some rolling to do, a few different batches. Panade, the secret to great meatballs. We can dice up a little, I got a little red onion here. We'll dice up a little of that, some chives. So that's about it, I think, in the dicing department. Um, got our little onion. I got a little spinach that I had left over. All right, we're gonna check and see how the pie crust is doing. So what are we looking for here? Okay, well, it look, looks good. I think, um, I think we can let it finish for a couple minutes, finish blind bake, which is eight minutes at 350 after you poke it with a fork. Yeah. So I'm just gonna put um, a little bit of sausage in it, and it says two cups of add-ins to your four eggs, and I think it's like a cup of cream and stuff, cream and milk. So let's, we'll cook up half of this beautiful sausage that we made. We made this. This is really fun. And I'm gonna turn the heat on here. And you know, I don't have a favorite frying pan to do this in. What do you a, like to use? You don't have a favorite frying pan? No, I, I like that one. I like this guy. I only have carbon steel. <sighs> I bought I a carbon steel that, I, I should talk to you about it because- Well, that's what that wok is that you showed me. Yeah, I got one other carbon steel thing and it, it's just it's just nasty and everything not, sticks to it. That's because it's not seasoned. See, learn so <laughs> But it's like it's way you. easier to season carbon steel than than it is cast iron, and and 
You can destroy right? the seasoning and it, you get it back in like five minutes. Okay. Carbon steel is the business. A well-seasoned carbon steel skillet is like the greatest thing ever. That sounds fabulous. I mean, it's basically non-stick except if you if you cut the if you break the seasoning, then you can get it back really fast. Yeah. So it's indestructible, and they're cheap. Most mm -hmm. of mine, actually, I don't even use. I only keep two in the kitchen because wow. a bunch of mine are from my restaurant days. Right. Because I use them all the time. No, cast iron or carbon steel is the way to go for frying pans. I mean, unless you can afford copper. If you can afford copper, then... <laughs> I have a little. La-dee-da, but for the rest of us... Oh, yeah, come on. Yeah, that needs to be seasoned. So I should no wonder, that's clean a, it as good as I can. So you're gonna... Yeah, you scrub it out. Scrub it out with some steel wool right now. It's okay if you go down to bare metal, because that one needs help. It does need help. And then, and then yeah, you just get it... You put it over your hottest burner, get it screaming hot. Same, same deal as the wok. Same, exact same deal as okay. the wok, because oh. they're made out of the same thing. All right, all right. Get it hot, spray in some cooking oil, scrub it around with tongs and a, and a paper towel, and then do that again until the bottom will turn black. When it's black, you know it's seasoned. And then and then all those stupid anal people on the internet, too, are like, oh, you can't ever soap and water it. No, you yes, can. Yes, you can. You totally can. Plus, Although, usually, like, if I haven't done anything hardcore in it, like, if I just, you know, sauteed some whatever and nothing's, like, attached to the bottom at all, I'll just throw in some salt and scrub that around. You can use soap and water all you want to. If the seasoning comes off, you just put, in, put on more, so... I've always washed my very well-seasoned cast iron skillet with soap and water. Yeah, it's totally fine. Because I had a friend tell me once, she got herself really sick for not washing out her cast iron skillet. Oh, yeah. And I thought, ooh, that ain't happening. Okay, so I poked it with a fork. The um, temperature's down to 350, and we are going, we're shooting for eight minutes. I'll, I'll hit seven. And you can hear our beautiful sausage frying. So we're just gonna stir that up a little bit and, and cook it and cook it. And it smells really good. It does smell really good. Okay, so this is um, the sausage here. Before we go, I'm gonna fix this pan because it's yes, driving dear. me nuts. I can tell. I know. He, says, he can. It's actually, okay. it's really bothering me because it's a nice pan and I'm like, It is Man. a really nice pan. It's a debouillet <laughs> and I, I, it's a beautiful pan. Okay, our sausages are already done. I browned it, it's in little chunkies. And um, we're that much further ahead. We're still waiting for the quiche to blind bake. So while that's only, it's only got like four minutes. So that's cool. So we can whip up our filling. And um, in my mixing bowl here, I, uh, I need four eggs. And uh, you probably have some magical um, thing in your head. Oh, there's, you definitely a, there's definitely a custard ratio. Yeah. Or very, depending on what kind of custard you want to make. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I want to say, I want to say quiche is. I knew you'd know this. I want to say it's two eggs to a cup of milk. I think it might Where's, be. It might be four actually because I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to go. I have it written down somewhere. I'd have to. I haven't made it in a while, so I forget. Hers looks a little, um, a little shy on the eggs. Oh yeah. On the filling. So. What's her? Wh how many it's eggs? Four eggs to one cup of milk and cream. Milk and cream? Yeah, half One, cup milk, half oh, cup cream. Oh, yeah, well, it might be four then for a firm Does that sound right? like that. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. Two, I think, is for like a, a, a runny or like a pudding custard. Okay, well, these are eggs from the girls. People like that. Okay, so I'm just mixing this up a little bit with a fork. And I am gonna grab 
a little rack to put the pie crust on. Okay, so here's here's to the milk portion part of the episode. All right. All right. So we have um, cream and milk. And the next time I make rice pudding, I'll save you a little bit, okay? Because <laughs> now I think I might have to make it. I know. i kind of been thinking about it. I'm like, hey, I know. Do you put raisins in yours? Uh, not really. I, I never used to be a huge raisin lover. I like raisins. I just usually don't put them in my rice pudding. Okay. Oh, see. So half milk and half... Uh, heavy cream. All right, so that's our custard part of the quiche. Four eggs. And you are doing it properly by using full fat milk as well because absolutely. Like if you're gonna make quiche, like don't mess around with skim right? milk. You know, like come on. No. And it's actually like the easiest way to vary the richness of quiche is to is to change the proportion of cream to milk. Like if you use all cream. Oh right. I mean, that's like nuts. It's like insanely silky and rich. Of course it is. It's almost too much. Like you can't eat you can't really I eat know. that much. But if you use all milk, then it's a little bit kind of drier tasting, which some people like. I mean, but that's all you gotta do to vary the yeah, texture. Like that. Yeah, I'm putting a little pepper. Just because I don't know I like playing with pepper milk. You put pepper in yours? Of course. I mean, yeah. I'm just grinding some in. I don't know. According to recipes, a lot of times your cheese can be salty. Your sausage or your ham is salty, so you want to be careful on what salt you add. Can I, can I just say something? Yes, you may. I completely disagree. I do too because I love salt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's like, okay, fine, the cheese is maybe a little bit saltier, you know, like salt uh -huh. is a little forefront. And the same thing with the sausage, but there's nothing in the, in the eggs. Like you're gonna take two really, you know, flavorful right. things and then put them in this, you know, right? canvas that's pretty bland on its own. It is. Like you need a little extra salt in the, in the quiche mixture to to bump up the flavor of that. Well, you know, I agree too. And all these recipes that I read tell you not to do that. And I find out I always that's I salt are, as I go. Those are blogger recipes. Those, those are blogger are, recipes. They're not. They're not chef recipes. Fine. We're gonna put some salt <laughs> in here. Everything always needs salt. Every time you add something, add a little salt, and you're always gonna. I know, and you, you build know. the layers of flavor. Well, yeah. And that's good. I mean, if you just add a little pinch of salt every time you add a new ingredient, you're pretty much gonna wind up with the proper amount of salt at the end. Pretty much. So, um, just because I like hot sauce, I'm gonna put a little shake in there. Okay, you're, you're going, what are you doing? Doesn't matter, it's not quiche. Okay, so I'm just gonna saute down that little bit of um, spinach we have, and. Oh good, I was kind of worried about that. <laughs> I, was I was nervous you might just dump it in there and get all watery. No, 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 and a little bit of red onion. I should know to trust you. Don't trust, no. <laughs> Life is a learning curve, you know? Mm. If I am the, isn't that good? That sausage is excellent, yeah. Thank you, and I you're like the sausage maker. You make excellent sausage. I have been known to make sausage occasionally. Oh my gosh, Jeff, you make amazing sausage. So, see, little salt, crunch, crunch, crunch. Little pepper. Okay, that looks good, huh? What Beauty. do you think? Beauty. Beautiful. Well, all we have in here for excitement is our cheese and our sausage, our spinach, some chives and some sauteed um, red onion. And um, I'm gonna put that in our pie crust. And um, I'm very excited. That we're gonna delicious. bake that. Cause Jeff and I always get to taste things after I cook things together, which is fun. 
And oh, okay, it filled up the pie crust nice. Look at that. It's like perfect ratio for the pie crust. I know, you nailed that. And I definitely have an excess of sausage in there, but gosh, I just love my, my sausage. <laughs> All right, well, we're gonna put that in the oven just like this and cook it. Sweet. Uh, I think it's like, I think they said 45 minutes. That's usually about what a quiche mm -hmm. is gonna take. So um, in it goes. And for 45 minutes now, we have to wait. Just throw, it in, just throw it in the microwave. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. <laughs> okay. And I think things that I'm gonna wanna watch for while this, this is in the oven is, um, because the pie crust is already baked to a point, I don't want the edge to get too, um, to brown or and burn. Yeah. And I have one of those cute little pie crust shield rings. Oh yeah. And they work pretty slick. Yeah. So um, I'm just gonna keep an eye out for that while it's baking. I'm also gonna put the timer on. I'm just gonna go halfway and check. Um, we'll go 20 and check it. Always a smart idea. Yeah, because like I said, my oven has a mind of its own. Sometimes. And sometimes you gotta spin things around too. Yep, and, and it's good to rotate things like cookies and stuff. So maybe while this is baking, you could um, season my beautiful pan I that can, I don't use because- I can. I totally yeah. hosed it up. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, they're really, they're really easy to fix. All right. I'll get to working on that. All right, you get to working on that. All right. All right, we're gonna bake. We're gonna let the quiche bake and eat <laughs> sausage. Well, it, it didn't take as long as it was supposed to. Um, I checked it. It didn't really need the pie shield on it. The crust did really well without it. Uh, it didn't burn. It didn't get too real brown. Actually, it's absolutely perfect. Uh, it said to bake it 45 minutes. We baked it 40. All so, right. Um, it looks great. I'm gonna take it out. Look at that. Ooh, it's perfect. What a lovely quiche. I tested it in the middle um, and it, the tester came out clean. All right. And it looks absolutely perfect. So hopefully it'll taste as good as it looks. And then now, the, now comes the waiting where you have to wait for it to cool down. I know, and then you can eat it. <laughs> All right, that was awesome. And there you have it. Lovely. And an Alaskan quiche. We good? And, I, and, while, and while Terry was baking the quiche, oh, I seasoned, I seasoned I her carbon steel pans. It was awesome. I'm going, Jeff. What is wrong with this pan? I have this beautiful omelet pan and I don't like to use it and it doesn't work and it's ugly. And he went, well, you don't have it seasoned right. And he seasoned my pan. Then I showed him my wok that I just got. <laughs> and then I just seasoned the wok too. And that didn't look good either. He goes, oh, for sake. And oh my gosh, it was the best ever. <laughs>
Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you. 